Good morning. I got a text message from Pastor John at some ungodly hour this morning. I don't know what time it was. It said, you probably aren't even up. Well, I am now. My phone just went off. Uh, For those of you that don't know, our senior pastor is on a mission trip down in Haiti. They uh, built a playground for an orphanage. He said the playground is done. The kids are out playing. They're loving it, having such a great time. And he has just been so blessed to be down there. And John sends his greeting. Um, He says thanks for the prayers for the church. They've had a great time, and he's looking forward to coming back. He's excited to be back with us again coming in this week. And he told me, you want to know what he told me? Remember last week he told Jamal, don't stink, right? Okay, so those of you that don't know, I raise chickens as a hobby, and I have a lot of eggs at my house, and Pastor John said, don't lay an egg. So if I lay an egg up here this morning, it's not my fault. I never even thought of that until he brought it to my mind, so I don't know. Anyway, this morning we are um, a little, we had a little mini-series Jamal and I were doing that has to do with after the resurrection, then what? And, um, you know, it's easy for us within the life of the church to sort of do the whole Easter thing, we do the resurrection thing, and then we just move on with our life. Our culture has taught us that you celebrate a holiday and then the holiday is over and then you just move on. You go back to normal living. You go back to the stuff that you've always done before. And so Pastor John asked Jamal and I to speak and to really ponder and to help the church ponder together what does it mean for us that we worship a risen and ascended Savior. The scripture that we're going to look at this morning um, comes out of the book of Acts. Uh, I I purposely did not put it on the screen because I really like to see you guys looking at your scriptures. So if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's it in the pew in front of you. Try page 909 and it should get you to the book of Acts. Um, That's where we're going to be looking. The book of Acts as we consider what comes next after the resurrection. And as you're getting there, let me just um, give you a little history. I was raised by two parents. I had four siblings, so we had a nice big family, lots of interaction going on all the time. But in the home that I grew up in, there were rules that were taught and were expected to be followed. We were taught that if you work in the kitchen, you clean up afterwards. We were taught that even if you didn't work in the kitchen, but it's your turn, you do the dishes, right? We were taught that we all played some kind of instrument. We were required to practice our instruments. We were taught that you get your homework done before anything else. No watching TV, you know. I grew up before internet, guys, so we didn't have to worry about playing on our phones or the internet, but... We did have TV. Okay, it was black and white, but we had TV, okay? But uh, anyway, we knew that there were expectations, there were things that were expected of us, and it didn't matter if my parents were home or not. If my parents went out for the evening, we were still expected to clean up the kitchen, get the dishes done, practice your instrument, get your homework done. And we did it because we could hear my dad's voice even when he wasn't home, right? We could hear it, and we knew what was expected of us and what it was that we were supposed to do. We're going to look and see that the disciples had that kind of an experience with Jesus. Let's pray together before we read scripture. Father God, we are so grateful, so grateful that we live in a country where we're free to come to a house of worship. Father, that we don't have to sneak in a back alley and a back door. Father, we confess that we take this for granted. We ask that you would help us to realize what a privilege this is for us to be able to come and worship freely, to gather around your word, to carry your word openly. Father, that we don't have to be afraid, 
for our lives or our jobs if we say, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. Father, we pray this morning that as we've gathered around your word, that each one of us would take all the stuff that's going on in our head, just set it aside, that we could focus on your word, that we could be sensitive to your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, that he is here in our midst, and he's our teacher. He is the one that helps us to understand the scriptures that have been given to us, and so thank you. And Father, we pray that when we leave this place, that we will know that we have been with you and with your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the scripture we are looking at is Acts chapter 1, and we're going to begin, I'm actually going to begin reading at verse 12. In the first 11 verses, we see that Jesus is for the last time with his disciples. They are outside Jerusalem, and he is talking to them, and he says to them, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. He tells them this is his last um, um, command, his last thing that he tells them, wait in Jerusalem, okay? So he's told them that, and then Jesus goes off up into the clouds, and he is gone. And now... The disciples then, in verse 12, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. It's a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, and that is Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These were with one mind continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. It was a gathering of about 120 persons that were there all together. And Jesus said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he had been counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his bowels gushed out. You're welcome. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, and that in their own language the field was called Hakadama, which means field of blood. And it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it, and his office let another man take. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us at this time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men should become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, he was also called Justice, and Matthias. And as they prayed, they said this, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all people. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. What I would like us to notice is that when the disciples returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet in verse 12, it says they went to a place that they were staying and they went to the upper room. And then in verse 14, it tells us this. They were all with one mind continually devoting themselves to prayer. So we're going to ask ourselves, when we, as we read the scriptures, it's always good for us to ask ourselves as we read along, I wonder why they did that, okay? I wonder why they did that. Why did the disciples devote themselves to prayer at this time? And I believe that the reason the disciples devoted themselves to prayer is because that's the example that they had seen Jesus doing as they lived with him. Now, you remember, Jesus was a rabbi, 
And the disciples were his followers. They were the ones that he had called to follow him. In our thinking, we understand that a rabbi is a teacher, but really for our culture, a teacher is somebody, you show up in their classroom, they tell you some stuff, you take a bunch of notes, you come back next week and take a test, and you move on with your life. You don't know a whole lot about that teacher's life, and they don't necessarily know a whole lot, a whole lot about your life. But a rabbi, a rabbi was a person who... For the Jews, when they went to, to study with a rabbi, first of all, they had to ask if they could come and study with this rabbi. You couldn't just go study with any old rabbi that you wanted to. You had to be granted permission to study with a rabbi. And in this case, Jesus actually called the men that he wanted to study with him. Remember, we, in the Gospels, it explains to us that he would see the men and he would say, come and follow me. And they would leave what they were doing and they would go and follow him. And not only, so not only does Jesus teach them from the things that he's teaching, but the disciples, they actually all just live together. And the, the rabbi is pouring his life into the lives of his disciples. It's more what we would consider a mentorship, okay? So the disciples leave their, their nets, leave their tax books, leave whatever it is that they were doing, and they go and actually live with Jesus. They follow him around. They eat together. They're sleeping in the same rooms. They're all together all the same time. So when Jesus leaves, so after his death, his resurrection, his ascension, they still are very aware of what Jesus would do, how he would do it, why he would do it, because they had lived together in such an interconnected way for those three years that they were together. So I am sure that the disciples now, so Jesus has ascended into heaven He's their rabbi who they thought would be with them for years, who they thought was going to help them overthrow the Roman, um, the Roman government, and now he's gone. So they're all kind of looking at each other like, what do we do now? And somebody's like, you know, Jesus always used to pray when he didn't know what to do. And so they prayed. They got together and they prayed Let's look back, but don't just take my word for this. We're going to go back into the book of Luke. So it's two books back to your left. Um, we're going to look in the book of Luke. The author of the book of Acts is Luke. First he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he wrote the book of Acts. And so we're going to look back into the book of Luke to confirm the things that we're learning in the book of Acts today. So we're going to start Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5 and verse 16. Hear all the pages turning? I love that. <laughs> pages are turning. So back to Luke chapter 5. And if you, when you get to Luke chapter 5, say amen. amen. There we go. All right. So here we are, chapter 5, verse 16. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Jesus himself, how often would he go away? How often would he go away? How many times would he go away? Often. He would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. I looked up that word often and you know what it means? It means often, yeah. So, all the time, Jesus so the men, they're all living together, they're working together, living together, eating together, they're together all the time, and there would go Jesus off to the mountain to pray. The disciples saw that example day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, of Jesus often, often slipping away into the wilderness to pray. Let's go to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. It was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the entire night in prayer to God. Jesus went off to the mountain to pray. 
he spent the entire night in prayer to God. Have you all ever tried to spend all night in prayer? When I was in college, and I was an extremely committed Christian, and I was going to live just like the disciples lived, and so no standing up to pray for me. I knelt by my bed to pray, and I was going to pray for hours. Well, yeah, about an hour later, I woke up. (laughs) My legs were totally asleep, no feeling in either leg have to pull myself back onto my bed, beating my legs to get the blood to flow again. I was like, okay, God, you know, I don't think I was cut out for this. I don't know how to make this work. I have found for me, walking and praying is much better. I don't fall asleep when I walk. (laughs) And I can stay focused on what it is I'm praying about. I love to take prayer walks. I don't know if you've ever done that. Love to take prayer walks. Very helpful way for me to pray. But here's Jesus off to the mountain to pray. He spent the whole night in prayer to God because you know what he was going to do? Verse 13 tells us when day came, he called the disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. Jesus was about to pick the 12 men out of all of his disciples. He was about to pick the 12 men that would be his apostles. And he spent all night in prayer before that decision. The disciples saw this as an example. They watched that happen. They were like, wow, when something really big's going on in your life, you spend time in prayer. Okay? Let's look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Move over a few more pages. We're going to go to uh, verse 28. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. And some eight days after these sayings, it came about that Jesus took Peter, John, and James, and he went up to the mountain to pray. Are we all catching a theme? Jesus would go outside of town, somewhere by himself, somewhere where people were not going to be bothering him to spend time in prayer. The disciples saw it over and over and over. They saw this example of Jesus going to prayer. Why would Jesus pray? What what is it that Jesus was looking for? He was looking for direction in this in the case just before this where he was going to choose disciples and he was asking the Father, I need I need your direction so we know who the 12 are. Because if you'll notice, if you notice, if if we jump back to chapter 6 for a minute, in chapter 6, it came that he went to the mountain to pray. He spent the whole night in prayer because the day came, Jesus called all of his disciples to him and chose 12 out of them. Sometimes I know growing up in church, I grew up through church and did all the Sunday school classes and everything, And we tend to get this idea that Jesus had 12 disciples, right? There were 12 men who were his disciples. And I guess somehow in my little mind, that meant 12 and only 12. I can remember being shocked, probably at college age, in this, in this, These verses we're reading in Acts right now where it says that the disciples were gathered together to pray in the upper room and there was 120 of them. I'm like, 120? Where'd they all come from? He only had 12. How did... Right? No. Jesus had a lot of disciples who would come and listen to him. They would come to get understanding from him. They would come and ask questions about the scriptures to him. These were all people who followed after Jesus and his teachings. There were way more than just the 12, okay? So he he is giving this example of prayer to a lot of people, people who are watching. And I think, you know, as we live and, and function in our world, what kind of an example are we being to the people in our family, to our friends? 
You know the whole discussion about do you pray in a restaurant? What do you do, right? Food comes. Do you take a moment or do you just do you just do it like this like, okay, I'm praying, but you know, I don't want to look like super holy, so I'm not going to close my eyes. Right? Oh, God bless this food. Okay, we can eat. Well, that was the prayer? What? What was that? Right? Or do we acknowledge before the world our understanding of who God is and saying, you know what, we're going to take a minute. We're just going to take a minute and just say, Father, thank you for this food that you've provided. Okay? We're going to acknowledge that in public. Okay? So that's Jesus here showing this example of praying, praying the necessity of it. And this time in chapter 9, he actually takes Peter, John's, and James with him going up to the mountain to pray. This is the example when, uh, when Jesus is changed before them. He becomes like the glorified Christ in this example. But the point of it is they are going to pray. So you know what happens in Luke chapter 11? Luke chapter 11, the disciples have walked with him enough now that finally one of them says to him in Luke 11 verse 1, it came about that while Jesus was praying, now this time he wasn't up on the mountain somewhere, he was just down with all his buddies and he was praying. And as he was doing that, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John taught his disciples to pray, we're asking you, teach us to pray. Have you ever felt the need to be taught to pray? Sometimes we talk about prayer. Everybody talks about it. It's a good thing we all got to do it. And some days we're just like, I don't, even, I don't really know what to do. Ah. If we understand that God is our Father... We talk to God like we talk to our father. Now, if you didn't have a father in your life growing up, or if you had an abusive father or or a harmful father of some kind, this is a very difficult picture. I understand that. If you grew up with a father that you were very close with, if you had a great relationship with your father, it's it's an easier concept to understand. But either, either way, the idea of prayer is the idea of talking to someone. You talk to them. You say, here's how my day's gone. How's your day going, God? Here's how my day's gone. Uh, we talk to him. We just tell him what's on our heart, what's on our mind. Here's what's going on with me. One of the things I find, if I sit and pray, prayer will become like this. Prayer will become like this. It'll be like, oh, Father, you know, I just really want to take, oh, look at what's going on out the window. Oh, Father, sorry. Wait, come back, come back. One of the reasons I walk and pray is it helps me to stay focused. Some people I know write prayers because it helps them to stay focused. So they write. We call it journaling often. Right? Write your prayers down. Write them down. And you know, the great thing about God is your prayers don't have to be full sentence. <laughs> He's not an English teacher. <laughs> he doesn't care about grammar, doesn't care about punctuation. But just sometimes the process of writing helps us to stay focused. Okay? We want to talk to the Father about what's on our hearts, and then we want to hear from him about what's on his heart. Prayer is not just talking, but it's also listening. It's also listening. The best way for us to listen to God is through the scriptures. So often in my prayer time, I'm out walking and talking and talking and talking and talking and, yeah. Okay, she likes to talk a little bit. Okay, so I'm out doing all that and then come inside or come to a chair somewhere where I can sit down and read the scriptures. And I say, Father, I'm asking you just to talk to me. Talk to me through your word today. Talk to me. And I approach my scripture reading 
as a conversation from God. I'm looking, God, for you to tell me something. Help me to learn more about who you are. Help me to learn more about who I am. Help me to learn to be honest about myself. Father, I'm asking you, speak to me through your word. Okay? One of my favorite examples of prayer from Jesus, we're going to look at one more example, is in John chapter 17. If you go to John chapter 17, John chapter 17 is called the high priestly prayer. The entire chapter is a prayer that Jesus prayed concerning his disciples. If you wonder, if you've ever wondered, I, I will tell you this, the scriptures tell us this. The scriptures tell us that today, Jesus is in heaven, and he is interceding for us before the Father. Did you ever realize that Jesus prays for you every day? Did you ever think about that? Jesus prays for you every single day. You ever thanked him for that? Jesus, thank you that you pray for me. Jesus prays for you. Isn't that just like mind blown? Huh. Jesus prays for you every day. Here's one of his prayers, chapter 17, book of John. These things Jesus spoke and lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the the son might glorify you. And then Jesus just goes through this entire prayer. It's the entire chapter, 26 verses of Jesus praying for his disciples. He prays like that for you every day. Every day, Jesus prays for you. So these are the examples that the disciples, so Jesus has been ascended into heaven now. The disciples aren't sure what to do, but boy, do they ever have that picture of prayer in their minds. Even when he's gone, we know what we should do. We need to pray. So back in our, in our main text in Acts chapter 1, they gathered together with one mind, devoting themselves to prayer. If you were to describe yourself to someone, would you ever describe yourself as a person who is devoted to prayer? Devoted. Devoted means like, I really, really, really like this thing and really want to do it. There are days that I'm not very devoted to prayer. There are days that I just do my own thing. Say, you know, Jesus, I've got this one today, thank you. Just do my own thing. And then I make a mess. And then I have to go back. Say, I'm sorry. Father, I didn't, I didn't talk with you today about this, did I? Devoted to prayer. Father, give us hearts that are devoted to prayer. Make us people who want to talk with you, who want to listen to you, who want to hear from you how it is that we should live in the world that we live in. As we go down past chapter, uh, verse 14, we get to verse 16. This is Peter, he's given a little talk. Peter stands up in the midst of the brethren, about 120 of them, and here's what he says, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled. The scripture had to be fulfilled. So, How did Peter know that the scripture had to be fulfilled? How did he know that? Well, I would say that he had to have studied it in order to know that it had to be fulfilled. So again, where would Peter get this idea that you have to study scripture? Well, first of all, every Jewish boy started in scripture study at the age of five. At the age of five... They were already studying the scriptures with Jewish boys. There was a whole, um, they they had a a school and you knew at five you would start with that and at age 10 the boys did this and at age 13 and 15 and so on and so on. They had a whole path to follow. 
But they studied the scriptures starting at five. So Peter had gone to Jewish boy school. He had studied the scriptures from the age of five. Jesus studied the scriptures from the age of five. This was, if you were a Jewish person, you knew from the very beginning of your life how important the scriptures were. You knew to study them. You knew to read them. You knew to discuss them. And you knew to obey them. Do what the scriptures say. Peter knew the scriptures. Jesus knew the scriptures. And Peter now, without Jesus around to lead them, is like, guys, let's think about it. These scriptures had to be fulfilled. Let's go back just quickly again into Luke. Luke chapter 4. And let's see the example of Jesus. Let's see the example of Jesus. Luke chapter 4. tells us this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness for 40 days where he was tempted by the devil. This is the temptation of Jesus. This is before he really begins his ministry. He is tempted by the devil out in the wilderness. 40 days he is out there with no food and he was hungry. And the devil comes to him in verse 3 and says this. So... If you are the son of God, tell this stone right here to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Then temptation comes and Jesus' immediate response comes out of the scripture. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? So Satan in verse 5 leads him up and shows him all the kingdom of the world in a moment of time. And the devil says to Jesus, I will give you all of this domain, all of its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Worship me, and it is yours. Verse 8, Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In order for Jesus to answer with scripture, he had to have studied it. You know, I told you this story before. When I first went to college, and I was in a chemistry class, and uh, the first couple weeks of class, and we had a quiz, and you know, it's one of those where you get the quiz, and it's got three problems, and your whole life is hanging on those three problems. And as you look at those three problems, you think, Oh, dear. So I prayed. And I said, okay, God, you're the guy that designed chemistry. I mean, you made this stuff up. So obviously you know the answer to these problems. So sir, with all due respect, please, could you just help me figure out these three problems? And you know what Jesus said to me? Study harder, Margie. Yeah. You know what I learned? I learned that if I'm not willing to put in the time and effort, most of the time Jesus is not going to just bail me out because he's a nice guy. He makes us put the time in. The disciples saw that as an example. They saw that as an example. They could hear Jesus saying, What does the scripture say? It is written. What does the scripture say? It is written. If you sit and just read through a gospel, read through it like it's a novel, and jot down how many times you hear Jesus, you hear Jesus say, it is written, or what does the scripture say? Over and over and over and over. How devoted am I to studying, studying the scriptures? You know, here's what I get really good at. I'm like, okay, I've got a million things to do today, so, but because I'm a good Christian, so I'm going to pray, okay, Father, please bless this day. I'm going to read my scriptures, okay. Read my one verse, close my Bible, and I am out the door. And Jesus is like, you know, 
that's not being devoted, ma'am. That's just getting it done so you got your checklist, can check it off. You know, you want to call yourself a Christ follower, Margie, and yet how committed are you to really following after me? How committed are you to praying and spending times in the scriptures? The only way that Peter knew that the scriptures need to be fulfilled is because he had spent so much time in the scripture. It's the only way you can know it. Are we doing it? Is it on our calendar? Do we carve out time to really, really get into the word? Do we do it? Jesus in John chapter 8 makes an interesting comment. If you want to look, John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. We all know verse 32. In fact, our culture knows verse 32. Verse 32 says, you know what? If you know the truth, the truth will make you free. Right? And then our culture tells us what truth is. And their idea of truth and the Bible's idea of truth, two different things. But when we look here in the script, we see, oh, it starts with and, which means we're in the middle of a sentence. Uh Uh-oh, we better back up. Let's go to verse 31. Jesus, therefore, was saying to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But there's a contingency What's the contingency? Staying in the word. If you abide in my word. That abide, we don't use that word anymore. Abide, it's an old word. You've got to be old like me to think that abide is a great word. But it's a great word. You know, in the barbecue generation, we all know what it means to marinate meat. Right? Put that sauce on there and let it sit. Don't bother it. Let it just sit in the juice, right? And the longer you let it sit in the juice, what does the juice do? It infuses, it fills the meat with the flavor. That's the picture. Jesus says, if you marinate yourself in my word, then you are truly my disciple, and then you know the truth, and that truth is going to set you free. We're not just talking about some cultural truth. We're talking about scriptural truth. We're talking about Jesus Christ who is the truth. And how do we get that? We get it by abiding in him, hanging out. I think that's kind of a, I think these days you hang out with people. We need to hang out in the word. Hang out in the word. Do we do it? Do we schedule our time in? You know, there are some of us that will not miss our favorite TV show. Will not. Don't call me during that time my TV show's on. Right? Are you that dedicated to the Word of God? Jesus said it's by our fruits that people know us. So we tell people we're Christ followers, and yet we're spending more time watching our TV and playing on the Internet than we are in the word of God. Jesus notices that. Abide in my word. That's when you're truly my disciple. Peter was a true disciple of the living Christ because Peter had learned how to abide in the word of God. One more thing that just really jumped out at me as I was reading this section If we go over to verse 24 in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we're going to go to verse 24. Verse 24, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all people. Show us what to do. You, Lord, 
who know the hearts of all people. You know, that can be a terrifying thought or it can be a comforting thought depending on where we stand. Jesus knows the hearts of everyone, which means he knows the hearts of me, the hearts of me. I have more than one. He knows the heart of each one of us that is in this room. Jesus knows our heart. He knew the hearts of the disciples. He, knew, he knows the hearts of the people that are around him. Why does Peter know this about him? Why does Peter know that God knows the hearts of all men? Very common teaching through the Old Testament. I'm not going to make you go there, but in 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon is dedicating the temple, he says, you, God, only you know the hearts of all people. In first, in second, no, 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 in First Chronicles 28, this is David's charge to Solomon as David is dying and his son Solomon is going to become king. David says this, you, Solomon, you know the God of your father. Serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and every thought. In 1 Samuel, when Samuel is choosing the king, 1 Samuel, Samuel says this, you know, the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. Lord looks on the heart. Peter was very familiar with this teaching because he was familiar with the scriptures. And he knew God knows the hearts of every man. So when it came time to pick a disciple to replace Judas, they said to God, you're the guy that knows hearts. We can see from the outside. We know who we like. We know who's looking good to us. But we want to know from you because we want to know the hearts of men. We can't read the hearts of men. Only God can. Only God can. Right? God reads our hearts. I just find that so powerful. And it reminds me that when I try to fool God, (laughs) I'm not fooling him. It doesn't work. Right? Can't fool God because he's reading my heart. One more thought. One more thought out of Acts chapter 1. Let's go back to verse 14. Verse 14. These with all one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Why did Luke make a point of mentioning the women? What do we know about women in Jesus' time? We know that women had no value. They were basically property. We know that if the man was tired of his wife, he could divorce her just because he was tired of her, just marry someone else. We know that women at this time, um, that there were, the men believed that women just were idle talkers and that you couldn't believe their words to the point that in the court systems, if there was a um, if a crime had been committed and the only eyewitnesses were women, their testimony was not allowed in court because you couldn't trust them. That's the world that Jesus lived in. That's how they viewed women at that time. And Luke says to us, "Hey, guess who was praying up there?" Not only were there a bunch of men praying, but there were also a bunch of women praying. Jesus came along to really change the view of women. Jesus elevated women in a way that was so countercultural that even his disciples had a hard time with it. I'd like you to go with me back into Luke one more time. We're going to go to Luke chapter 11. And let's see if we can hear what Jesus is saying.
in Luke chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. Jesus has been talking about some things and it came about in verse 27 that while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Okay? This woman is saying to Jesus, the most blessed thing is your mother that she got to be your mother. That's the greatest blessing of all. What a blessing for Mary. Highly exalted. And Jesus says, oh yeah, you're right. No, he doesn't. Let's look at what Jesus said. Jesus actually doesn't answer her. He doesn't doesn't accept what she says. He doesn't reject what she says. He just says something totally different. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, on the contrary... Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. You know what Jesus has just done? Jesus has taken women from being a baby-making factory to being true disciples of Christ. He has said to these women, the most blessed thing you can do, women, the most blessed thing you can do is hear the word of God and observe it. I love that. I love that. Remember when Jesus goes to the house of Lazarus? Actually, it's called the house of Martha. And he's dealing with, he's got Mary and Martha with him. And Martha's busy in the kitchen. And Mary is sitting with the men listening to Jesus' teaching. And Martha comes bustling out of the kitchen. She says, Master, tell Mary to get back in the kitchen and help me. I'm in there all by myself. Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus says to her, Mary has chosen the most important thing. What was Mary doing? She was listening to Jesus. She was learning from Jesus. She was acting like a disciple of Jesus. Ladies, As we study the words of Jesus, we begin to understand that the most important thing that we do is that we learn to be his disciple. We study his words, we pray, we follow after him. It's not just something that men do. It's it's a call to women. Blessed, Blessed is the woman that bore you, Jesus goes. Oh, on the contrary, on the contrary... Blessed are the women who hear the word of God and observe it. Go back to Luke chapter 8. This is pretty mind-blowing stuff that Jesus did. Luke chapter 8, verse 19. Luke chapter 8, verse 19. Jesus' mother came to him and his brothers also. But they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And so it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. Look at Jesus' answer in verse 21. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus isn't denying his family. He loved his mom. He loved his brothers. But Jesus is saying there is a higher importance here. We all, ladies and men, are being called to hear the word and respond to it. Hear the word and obey it. Live according to the scriptures. It's the example that Jesus gave as he lived in this world. It's the example that the disciples knew when Jesus was gone. They knew what they had to do. Pray, search the scriptures, live in obedience to them. And the the awesome part of all of that is that he doesn't just leave us to do the best we can. All through the Old Testament, all the way up to the Ascension, 
all of Jesus' disciples, all of the followers of God, really could only do the best they could do. It was just them trying to follow God. But in our next chapter, if we were going to Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit gets poured out. And when the Holy Spirit gets poured out, the Holy Spirit now lives in the hearts of every one of us who is a Christ follower. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables us. We fail. We all fail. We all forget to pray. We all forget to read our scriptures. We all do our own thing. And yet we go back and we say, Holy Spirit, help me. Holy Spirit, help me. And the Holy Spirit comes and he helps us to be true followers of Jesus Christ. There is a scripture, there's a story that Jesus gives to make his point. And he says, you know, you all want to call yourselves Christ followers, and yet... And yet, the foundation that you're walking on is shaky because you're not doing the two things I called you to do. He says, build your foundation on the rock. And the rock is, pray and stay in the scriptures. Pray and stay in the scriptures. So after the resurrection, what do we do? We become a people of prayer and a people of scripture. We study We listen, we read, we pray. We encourage each other. Are you in the word? What have you learned in the word this week? Have you been studying? What have you been learning? Why are we afraid to ask each other that kind of stuff? Ah, let's do it. Let's encourage each other. The point's not guilt. The point is not pointing fingers. The point is to encourage. In the word, in the word. Pray. Do we hear Jesus saying it? The disciples heard him. Let's ask him to help us hear him. Let's pray. Father God, we ask, Father, that you would help us to hear you. Help us to hear your son, Jesus. Help us to hear the Holy Spirit as he encourages us to pray, and to be in the word. Help us to be a people who are committed to knowing you more fully, to knowing ourselves more fully. Father, we pray that we will become a listening people, that we will hear Jesus as he guides us into his word, and into fellowship with you through prayer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.